Yeah, as you've heard already, as Eric brought to our attention, there is a congregational meeting coming up at the end of this month. And some have asked, we, we just had one of those. Why are we doing this again? Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons why. One, we're, we are talking through some exciting, wonderful things as a church family. That's part of it. But another part of it is that COVID pushed us off with our first meeting of the year. So we got pushed off a month. So if it feels weird to you, that's why. We kind of skipped January, and so we're coming in, coming in hot. So but we're looking forward to a gathering at that time, and just want to encourage you not to miss that, and join us at the end of this month in a couple weeks. There's a, there's a, a passage that we're in today, and, and it's a hard passage. Uh, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there. And uh, this is one of those passages I, I just want to uh, be clear. You know, we're going to be talking about some things that, um, you know, might be challenging or will be challenging for some. And we also want to be very sensitive to parents. We understand there's young people in here, and some of the topics that we're going to be talking about may or may not be uh, areas that you want to go into right now with your, with your uh, young person. And so uh, we're sensitive to that, too. If you'd like to take the time now to go, we're, we're okay with that as well. We intend to be not too detailed, but we're dealing with a passage of Scripture that is dealing with hard things. And, uh, and that, by the way, that is a beautiful thing about how we pursue uh, ministry here at Clayton Valley Church because our general practice is to go through the Bible one passage at a time. We just go right on through. What does that do? Well, it, it, it helps us to deal with issues that um, we wouldn't just be pulling out of the sky to deal with uh, because the fullness of God's Word deals with the, all sorts of elements of our lives before the Lord. Um, I also, and I've said this before, I'm convinced that by going passage by passage, verse by verse, and by being committed to preaching and teaching and being in what the Bible says, uh, really the Bible protects you from me. And that's important um, because a lot of times there can be an idea where, um, you know, the person who, who is preaching, they kind of pick their their topics, pick the things they want to deal with, and then the body of, of, of believers in that place talk about those things all the time. Uh, whereas for us, we're committed to going through the passages of Scripture uh, in an expositional way, meaning we want to take what, the meaning that's there and pull it out uh, rather than taking what's in our head and read it in. And so this is, this is certainly one of those times where I believe this becomes particularly beneficial to us. Um, in his, in his high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus prays something for, for all of his followers that's really, really important. He prays to God, and he, by the way, he's praying for his followers of all ages, in terms of, you know, first century and on, into the modern age and beyond. He prays this. He says, I do not ask you, he's talking to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That's a key tension there. Don't take them out of the world. They need to be in the world. They need to be a part of what's happening in the culture, in the society, in the places they live. But at the same time, keep them from the evil one. Protect them. And over the past 2,000 years or so, at various times, in various seasons, in various centuries, the body of Christ has, has misunderstood this passage and, and applied it maybe in a skewed way. And so, so rather than living a, a vibrant life of walking with Jesus in a dark world, protected by his mighty power, instead, the church has decided to live more isolated, pulled back, 
Uh, in extreme cases, there's been the, what's been called the monastic movement, where monasteries were actually opened up. And people would simply go off to these monasteries. They would typically be in idyllic situations and places, and you would just live there. There were walls around it. Only if you committed to the following of this particular religious practice could you be there. And the idea was they would work the land, and they would just be apart from all forms of sin. Um, but there's more subtle versions of that, that that have come about over the years, over the centuries. And, and so what happens is the church becomes remote and disconnected from those who need the light of the gospel the most. There's another problem, though. You'll notice in Jesus' prayer, keep them from the evil one. Uh, Paul would phrase it in a different passage this way. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so as much as the church has erred in, in, in sort of pulling back and isolating and being apart from the world completely, there's also been this tendency in the, uh, over the centuries of the church being too tolerant of flagrant sin within her. And so sin happens within the church, and because the church has become so like the world around it, there's so little difference, things that bother God don't bother his people. And as a result of that, actual purity before God on a day-to-day basis within the life of a church is greatly compromised. And that's what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. Corinth was satisfied and puffed up, as we've already discussed in this series, with the, the proud way of which their leaders knew what they knew. There was knowledge, there was influence, there was status, there was arrogance, and yet, when you looked closely at the church, and as Paul does here, not all was well. Things were wrong. And to not deal with sin is to um, pretend to play church, to act as though a people of God or a grouping of people is following faithfully after the Lord, when in fact, they're not at all. They're too much like the world around them. And so God cares so much about his church's purity and witness that he calls us to deal with sin. And he has a very uh, distinct way of doing that. Uh, If you would go ahead and and, and open uh, to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, we find Jesus describing this very well. Jesus was giving his his teaching on how to deal with sin within the church. And here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's happening here? Jesus is saying there's sin within Christ's body amongst his pe- God's people, and the way to deal with it is first and foremost, go one-on-one to the person. No one else needs to know. It's between you and them, and you work it out. 
And what's the goal? He says very clearly, to win them, to, to restore the relationship, to bring things back to that place of harmony and grace and, and, and truth as well. But if that doesn't happen, bring a witness or two. And by the way, those witnesses are not those who are on your side, right? It's like, yeah, that's right. They're going to back me up. No, it's to have an objective brother or sister there with maturity who can help talk through the situation. And then if there's still a refusal to repent, at that point, it goes to the next step of bringing it before the church. And if there's still a refusal to repent, there's a hardness of heart within the the life of that brother or sister, a so-called brother or sister at that point, then they're, they're removed from the church. Uh, the, this is called church discipline. And, and let's just be really clear about this. We are not, uh, the, the level of sin that's being discussed here is not, you know, simple. Well, it's not the, not the word. It's, it's not, um, there's a category of sin that's being described here. There's a scandalous nature to this sin. An example I will often use. Uh, you know, if, if a wife comes to me and says, I want you to discipline my husband because he's watching too much TV. Uh, I'm like, yeah, we're not going to do that. I mean, you know, he might be watching too much TV. Don't get me wrong. And that needs to be dealt with. But this is the kind of sin that is dragging Jesus' name through the mud in the public sphere. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's the kind of sin whereby people see and know and there's a lack of repentance to such an extent that the testimony of the church is marred. And, uh, and so that's, that's how that's to be practice. And, and here at Clayton Valley Church, we do practice that. If you're a member here, you've agreed. You've said, hey, please hold me accountable. I, I want you to be in my life in that way uh, because we need that. And, and this, of course, would be the path that would be taken at the last resort. This is not something we do all the time. Since I've been here for the past 14 years, we've probably gotten to step four maybe three times. And each case was a very severe case and, and a refusal uh, to t- turn and repent. And it's it was over a long span of time of working with, pleading with the individuals. Um, and uh, and so, so that's, that's an important thing to know. Um, and that's a, actually one of the reasons why a membership is a beautiful thing and a good thing, to say, hey, please do hold me accountable. Um, I need that. I am grateful that I'm looking at people here. I know they're talking to me going, hey, Chris, what's up? What's going on? What happened? You know, and hopefully, by the way, step one, in a healthy church, that's happening all the time. That's happening all the time. Uh, we're talking with one another. We're dealing with things. We expect there to be conflict, and we expect conflict to be dealt with in a biblical way. And, and that's really important. So God cares so much about his church's purity and witness that he calls us to, to living and walking in this way. It's a critical part of the life of a healthy church. So now go ahead and go back to to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. This is what Paul is addressing here in the life of the church at Corinth. And uh, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Paul's addressed their arrogance. He, he's addressed the fact that I, I need to, I'm going to be coming to you. How do you want me to come to you? With, with a, a rod or a spirit of gentleness? It's going to depend upon your attitude of repentance regarding these things, and now Paul gets very specific with the first century believers in Corinth when he writes this. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. 
that someone has his father's wife and you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But to those outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grace us to hear what you are saying as you've penned this, as your spirit has written this. We now ask that he would apply it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would continue to make us the church you want us to be that we would be very, very in tune with you regarding your desire for and your call for and your command for holiness. Uh, May we walk with you in a way that glorifies you in sincerity and truth. And may the world around us see and glorify you. May there be others in our lives that we're around on a daily basis, those who don't know you, that, that we would be able to have an impact on by your grace. That we'd share the grace we've received from you with them. And as we deal with one another as a church, Lord, may we do so in such a way that demonstrates grace, not only in loving and in forgiving, but also demonstrates grace in confronting one another in that love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we look at this passage, we're, we're going to see uh, how God works through church discipline and, 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 and what he's doing through that thing that he's instituted, both in Christ's words and here in what Paul's describing. And the first thing we see is, is that God works through church discipline to restore sinners. That's what he wants to do. Uh, when you look at the word, there is actually immorality among you. That word for immorality is porneia. And porneia is, is uh, the kind of overarching word for sin, um, oftentimes connected with sexual immorality, but it actually was more broad than that even. Uh, in, in the context of sexual uh, ethics, it was anything outside of a one-man, one-woman covenant of marriage that involved any form of sexual conduct or activity was considered immoral. 
pornea. Uh, so that was heterosexual adultery, heterosexual fornication, uh, homosexual relationships. Uh, that would include uh, any other form of sexual deviation from God's appointed path of one man, one woman, covenant, a lifelong covenant of marriage. And so, so here we find that someone is engaging in incest, obviously outside of God's plan and, and his instructions. Why would you, you see it throughout the Old Testament? Uh, you see it, again, restated in various places in, in the New Testament as well. Um, but clearly, this was something that was beyond the pale. We find it in Leviticus 18.8, very specific instruction regarding incest. And, uh, and, and, and as we look at this, we're going, okay, someone has his father's wife. Now, it's possible uh, that we, this is not the, the man's biological mother because of the phrasing here. Of, it doesn't say someone has his mother. It says someone has his father's wife. So very likely, uh, that's what's being described there. And... Uh, and these relationships occurred in ancient times. They occurred, sadly, in the first century, and, and they occur today as well. And, um, you know, it kind of helps us to see something. You know, you look at Corinth, and you look at what it was like, and we'll get more into that a little bit later. Um, the good old days were not always good. People say, oh, in the past, things were just so much more moral and upright. Not in the first century, they weren't. Absolutely not. Um, but, but what Paul is saying here is... Um, the way he phrases it, notice he says, it is actually reported that there is, you know, you can kind of see there's, a, there's an element of what on earth is going on. And, uh, and, and later on, he'll describe that how, how, you know, in the same verse, even among the Gentiles, this isn't okay. Actually, in the first century, as much as it was almost a, a no-holds-barred approach to sexual relationships and expression, even to the Gentiles that surrounded the Corinthian believers there in Corinth, even for them, incest was still taboo. And so Paul's going, why are you arrogant? You're, you're all puffed up. Oh, I follow this leader. I follow that leader. I, I'm, I'm of this person. Oh, I know. I have knowledge. Oh, I understand the Bible. I, I, the scriptures, I've got them down. I know how to have wisdom and navigate all this stuff. Oh, we, we have all these things. We have knowledge. And Paul's going, hello, what's going on? This is something that is known amongst the church family. And, and that's another area that we see here that he addresses. Um, verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned. Uh, what's he saying? There's an arrogance that instead of mourning over this sin and dealing with it, you've actually become passive, you've become indifferent, and you're allowing this thing just to go on. And, and this is also a known issue. If you look at verse 1, it says it's actually reported. In other words, I've heard about this. How did Paul hear about it? Maybe it was Chloe. We, we heard earlier that Chloe had, had uh, gone in Chloe's people so people who had worked for her, she was probably a businesswoman in the first century who had people who worked for her. And so some of her people had come to Paul and relayed some of these things. So it was a publicly known thing. And, and this arrogance led to passivity in action and inaction. And, and as a result of that, uh, this... Uh, you know, the word for it would be antinomianism. So namas is law, anti is against law. And so this idea of, of this, you know, not dealing with God's law or righteousness was just sort of pervading the Corinthian church. And you kind of wonder, like, why, why didn't they address this? There's a lot of whys, and we don't get all the answers here in the passage. So we've got to be careful not to speculate. 
You know, one, one question comes up is just sort of like, okay, why wouldn't they address this? It's so, even by their own standards, even by the pagan culture around them, even by their standards, this is so wrong. What would stop them? Well, what, what if this person was a leader within the church, maybe? Or maybe, maybe this person had given a lot. Maybe they were prominent in the, in the community, in the culture. Maybe there's some form of favoritism happening here. Well, we would do something normally, but you're going to talk to him. I'm not going to talk to him. I don't want to deal with that. So they just kind of overlook it. That, that's possible. Uh, another question that comes up is, why is it that he's dealt with here and she is not? Uh, because you see from the passage, someone has his father's wife. The tense there is ongoing in the present. So it's not like a one-time incident. This is an ongoing, known thing that's happening currently in the present. And you're kind of going, why is he not dealing with the woman as well? Uh, is it possible that, that she didn't have much say in the matter? Yeah, it might be possible. Uh, more likely, though, because of the context of what he describes here in the letter, she probably isn't a believer. You know, he's like, why, why would I deal with, you know, those who are outside the church? I'm dealing with those in the church. But this person, he claims to be one. And therefore, this has to be dealt with. Um, so what does Paul do? Verse 3, uh, for I, on my part, have already judged him. Uh, the I there is emphatic. And uh, there's a lot of questions about, well, how did, how did this work? You know, so I've already judged him. Judged him. I'm, I'm uh, absent in body, but I'm present in spirit. And you're kind of going, okay, what, what does that mean? You know, and some have taken that to mean, well, you know, it's kind of like when we would say to someone, my thoughts, our thoughts are with you. You know, or, or I feel like I'm with you when I say this, or that kind of thing, where it's sort of a sentimental, you know, thing. But, but, but the problem is, verse 4 doesn't let us do that. Verse 4 clearly describes something that's more profound and weighty than that. When he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus. Okay, he's, he's talking, no, there's something happening here. And so most likely the language is pointing to Paul's apostolic authority. When he's writing this even, his words are coming from the Holy Spirit. And so in light of that, when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of the Spirit. And so when he pronounces judgment, he is expecting the congregational meeting to immediately agree with his verdict. And so when the assembly of God's people gathers together, Paul there in spirit, as the Spirit has penned these words through him and with power, he's saying, you need to render the same judgment that I've already rendered. And the judgment from Paul is very clear. It's bold. Paul's judgment actually is completely aligned with the Old Testament as well. When you look at that Leviticus 18 passage, and we don't have time to do that today, but when you go there, you'll see that those engaged in these kinds of activities, they were removed from God's people. Um, then verse 5, he gets more specific. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And, and, and you're going, okay, that, that's heavy language. What does he mean by that? It really is the idea of taking someone and putting them outside of the community. In many ways, it's a judicial act by God whereby his people, and God is saying this to this person through the people, the unrepentant person, you're walking on this path, you want these things of the world, you will not refuse, or you, ref you refuse to let go of them, and therefore I'm just going to let you take the path you want to take. That's what you want. You don't want to be following me, so fine. There you go. Uh, the phrase used in Romans 1 is God gave them over. God gave them over. And so handing over to Satan is a strong term. It's a judicial sentencing. 
And uh, it's very much along the lines of what Jesus again described. We read it earlier in Matthew 18. The removal, excommunication from the church. And it's, it's, it's really saying rather than enjoying the blessing of Christian fellowship, rather than, than being in the place of, of God's people together, now because you have longed for these things and you will not let go of these things, you're now allowed to just wander in Satan's realm. Now, he goes on to say, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved. And some have gone, okay, what's that? What's he referring to in that? Um, it's possible to look at flesh as, as the actual physical body of the unrepentant brother or sister. And the phrase could be understood as, as there's a, a, a curse in some ways announcing that there's going to be a bodily result to your sin. And we see that in other places. So there's places where Paul will write to the Corinthian church later and saying the way you're receiving the Lord's table with such disregard and flippancy, God's judged you. And because of that, some of you sleep. Literally, some people have lost their life. So if, if someone's unrepentant and they won't return and turn to God, uh, and, and maybe they are, in fact, a, a, a believer, but they're refusing to repent, God can take them home early, is what Paul's saying there. So God's done that. If there's, if there's a brother or sister who refuses to repent and is going to drag the Lord's name through the mud, we're told in Scripture that he might just go out of mercy and out of love for you. I'm taking you home now. Which is a sobering thing to think about. So that might be what Paul's referring to here. Uh, another possibility, if flesh isn't the physical body, but instead if, if flesh there in, in, uh, in that passage is, is really describing the unredeemed part of our humanness. In other words, it's more of a, um, Paul refers to it at different times in the book of Romans. Um, the, the way that flesh would be seen there would be more that, that part of our, our being that it, we still wrestle with. We have indwelling sin, for example, inside. And if that's what flesh is, uh, then it's, it's the idea that because of the discipline that's being brought upon the person, the hope is that they would renounce finally, that they would be restored, that they would turn away from that thing that they're chasing after and respond in repentance. And in so doing... Uh, they would then um, have the flesh, that element of them, destroyed because they've put it aside, they've put it away. And, and in this case, it would be this, this man renouncing completely his incestuous relationship. So he would say, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm repenting. Um, but we find here, here with, with this form of judgment that Paul's rendering and what he's calling the Corinthian church to do by church discipline, the community... Is, is rescued in terms of uh, cleansing itself, ensuring that it doesn't appear to condone something that God blatantly forbids, but also that the individual himself would be restored, that he would be drawn back into the community in fullness uh, and, and forgiven because he's repentant. And that's why he'll go on to say that his spirit may be noticed at the end of verse 5, saved, but it's not just saved, but saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this is connected to the day of the Lord. We just talked about it earlier. I mean, Jesus is coming back. He's returning. He's returning to judge. And so this means in the fullest sense that on the day of the Lord, in that final moment, Paul's confidence even is that this disciplined offender, this one caught up in incest, this one who's been blatantly sinning in this way in the assembly, 
Paul is confident that as church discipline is brought to bear on this one's life, that he will turn, that he will repent, that he will stand restored. And so that on the day of the Lord, his spirit would be saved. And I love that about Paul, that pastoral optimism. You know, Paul isn't there going, that's right, this guy, we're getting, he's out of here and good riddance. No, that's not Paul at all. Paul, his pastoral heart is such where he's going, this is an evil, wicked thing that he's entangled in. And I want him rescued. I want him on the day of the Lord to stand there made complete by Christ. And this harkens to what what the book of Jude says. Now to him who's able to keep you and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now and forever. What's what's that saying? Who who makes you stand in the presence of God's glory blameless? Jesus. Who gives you in that moment when you're standing there great joy? Jesus. So I think here, at the end of verse 5, that's the purpose. Notice, so that, purpose clause, his spirit may be saved. That's why we're doing this. And so that's why there needs to be, rather than arrogance, mourning. And I also think that's important. Paul's contrasting arrogance and mourning. You're like, well, are those two things really contrasts? I mean, arrogance, the contrast of that would be humility. That's true. But think about how that works out in relation to sin. If I'm arrogant... At that point, I'm not mourning over sin. The demonstration of a humble heart in light of our sin is mourning over it. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Why? They shall be comforted. Why? Because when we mourn our sin and when we repent and we turn to the Lord for forgiveness, he gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. He lavishes that out on us. That's the call for all of us, every day, every moment. God has a heart to restore sinners. God has a heart to restore a brother or sister who has been entangled in grotesque sin and needs to repent. That's the whole point of this call to church discipline. And that's why it's humility, it's mourning. That also, by the way, affects the temperament and tone by which church discipline is carried out. When we get to that point with a brother or sister, again, it's not get out of here. No, it's sorrow, it's grief, it's tenderness. It's always, always, always with the aim of restoration. So God's work through church discipline, he does it not only to restore sinners, but secondly, he also does it to preserve purity. We see that in verses six through eight. He brings up an illustration. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And I think for a lot of us, that's a hard thing to see because frankly, look, we don't make our own bread anymore. I mean, we go to the store and it's wrapped in plastic with that little pink green grommet thing. I don't call it a thing, but anyway, um, that's how we get our bread. 
So we're not really familiar with this picture. But, but, but the idea would be, I mean, with bread even, I, I, the closest I've got, I'll, full, full disclosure, we have a bread maker. I haven't used it in the past five years. Okay? It's above the fridge. And the closest thing I know to this whole thing is I take a sealed packet of bread riser stuff and I pour it in with the packet of flour and other stuff and I add water and I press a button. I mean, that's, that's it. But for those here who do make bread, you get it. Why? Because the idea he's giving is this. Leaven, as one writer put it, leaven has unstoppable effects out of all proportion to its size. Think about that. Why? Leaven, just take a little bit. You put a little bit in there, and what happens? Foof. Whole batch of dough is affected. Just a little bit. And that's what Paul is saying here about their arrogance. Your boasting isn't good. Notice what he's confronting here. He's not even confronting the incest anymore. He's already dealt with that. You would think he'd be in verse 6 going, and incest is wrong and not good. And by the way, absolutely, he's already said that. But here, what is he focusing on? They're boasting about that. Their arrogance is so caught up in position and prominence and, and look at our church and look at how great we are. We've got all this going on and we've got this leader and this leader and we've got everything happening. And yet, this sin is in place in front of everybody's eyes and they won't deal with it. And he's like, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? What's the solution? Clean out the old leaven. This arrogance spreads just the way leaven does through a whole loaf. It affects every part. And, and, and so he's saying, clean it out. Why? Notice, middle of verse 7, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Oh, that, that's exciting. That's good stuff. You would think he would say, clean out the old leaven so you can become unleavened. He doesn't say that. Notice very carefully. He does not say that. He says, clean this out because you already are unleavened. Jesus has done that. He's made that happen. That's why in verse 7, he's saying, really, you've already been made a new lump. You are a new lump of dough. So live out who you are. This is back to your identity in Christ. If you're a believer, if you've come to Jesus, if you've rested in him for your salvation, you already are in him. You already are new. You already have new life in him. And because of that, you live in a different way. So you're not cleaning it out to become unleavened. You're cleaning out the old leaven because you are. He's not saying you ought to be without yeast. He's saying you actually are without yeast. So because of that, don't bring back the old yeast. Which in this context would be the evil of their age that surrounds them. Especially their arrogance. There can be no going back to the past. You'll also notice in verse 7 that he now brings up the Passover. Isn't that exciting? You know, this, this Friday we're going to be celebrating Good Friday. And we're going to have a time together in this very room around the Lord's table. And you realize that 
that whole thing of the Lord's table and, and Good Friday and the events there and Jesus and what he did in establishing his table at the Last Supper, all of that is connected to Passover centuries before. The Passover lamb was slain. The blood of that lamb was put on the doorposts of the home so that the angel of death would pass over those who by faith had trusted God's provision through the Passover lamb. And so today when we celebrate the Lord's table, we are remembering what Christ did as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what's Paul saying here? This purity that you're to experience is the result of a new creation. It's brought about by the work of Jesus as the Passover lamb. There's a new creation. You're a new lump. You've been made new. Jesus did that. This changes how you walk. And notice, this changes how you celebrate together. Look at verse 8. Let us celebrate the feast. There is a, there's a joy here. There's a sense in which it's like, wow, look what God has done. Look at how he, he's changed us. He's removed the leaven. He's made us a new lump. And so as we celebrate this together, we're filled with joy at what he's accomplished. It's a festival to be celebrated. And really, the Christian life is just that. The Christian life that we live is an ongoing festival, a celebration. And so we don't observe that festival according to the old standards, according to the old expectations, according to the life that we left when we were born again, when we trusted in Jesus, and as we're walking with him. Old things have passed away, new things have come. And maybe you're here today and you've never come to that place of trusting Christ, of receiving his gift of salvation. Uh, The call for you today would be to turn to him, to rest in him, in his finished work on the cross, the, the work of salvation that he's accomplished. He's done it once for all. You can't add to it. You cannot be religious enough to earn it. You can't be morally upright enough to make yourself worthy of it. The whole point is none of us are worthy. But he is the one who says, by grace, trust me. Come to me. Have your sins wiped away. You can be made white as snow. I love the description here at the end of verse 8. You see the contrast there. There's an old leaven of malice and wickedness, and then there's the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You'll notice how Paul's now driving home a few other sins that they're dealing with in their midst. So there's the arrogance, and now there's malice and wickedness. Malice is the idea of having ill thoughts towards others and a desire to harm in some way. Notice the contrast, sincerity and truth. That word sincerity... um, It has the idea of openness and light. It has this idea of clarity. It has this idea of living in such a way where you're you're living in the light of the sun, so to speak. There's no duplicity. There's nothing being hidden. It's just, this is me. This is where I'm at. This is what's going on. Uh, I was thinking of, you know, back many, many years ago with with our old old car. We were uh, were down uh, in L.A., Getting a car wash, I think. We're visiting family. And, uh, and the car wash guy walks up to me and he looks at me. And of course, the car was probably like 12 years old at the time. And so he's, he's going, uh, hey, you want me to polish up your lights? 
I'm like, polish up my lights. What do you mean? He's like, well, you see how there's a film on it? It kind of isn't that bright. I can, I can take care of that. Like, you can take care of that? Really? Yeah, I had no idea. Okay, great. Yeah, do it. Let's see what happens, you know? And sure enough, we go out to the car and I'm going, huh. I mean, it's just clear, you know? And then that night we were driving and I turned on the lights. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> light. Huh. That's how this is supposed to work, you know? How about that? That's the idea of sincerity here. It's, it's living our lives in such a way that it's clear and it's open in the light of the sun. And that's how we celebrate the feast, in sincerity and in truth. Here's a question, though. What, what if instead you found yourself being pulled back? You found yourself being pulled back into the life that you thought you left forever. You're struggling with sin. You, 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 you want to have victory, but you're not sure what to do. What does this passage say for you? I want you to know something. This passage gives you great hope if you will repent. It's not too late. This passage calls out for all who are struggling to say, hey, I need to confess that sin. Literally means to agree with God that this is sin. I need to confess it. I need to confess it to God. It might be wise to go to a brother or sister and say, hey, I need to talk with you about this. Let's deal with this. And then the other thing the Bible says to do would be to repent. Repentance really means I'm walking in one direction and by the grace of God, I decide, empowered by him, to turn the other way. It's taking action to do that. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Sermon on the Mount quite a bit. I'd encourage you to go there this week and look at, at what he says. Uh, he talks about if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, to take extreme steps. Whatever avenue it's coming in through, deal with it. Deal with it in community. Deal with it with others. Don't hide. Don't, don't try to drive around with those lenses clogged up and cloudy. No, wash them off. Confess. Repent. Live anew. Take out the old leaven. Why? Because if you're a believer, realize this, you already are a new lump. You need to live in light of who you really are. God works through church discipline not only to restore sinners, but also to preserve purity. And I want to just bring it to your attention how difficult and challenging that would be in Corinth. If you went to Corinth today, and you can, um, there's, a, there's an area that's, that's up on top of a hill. It's called the Acrocorinth. And if you were to head up there, uh, you would see... Um, many, many different structures that are still there. Many of them were temples to various gods within the pagan Greek culture. And, and if you got to the very top, you would look out and you would see um, the, the, the ocean there. You would see the valley below. And so those were the places they would establish these temples. And on top of the Acrocorinth, one temple that was particularly well-known was the temple to Aphrodite. And she would have been known as the goddess of love. Uh, but, but trust me, nothing happening in that temple had anything to do with what the Bible would describe as love. Because essentially, what happened within that temple was a, a, an orgy 
There were temple prostitutes. In the evening times in Corinth, those prostitutes would funnel down into the valley below to provide their services to the people of Corinth. And it was a known thing. It was normal. It wasn't looked down upon at all. That was typical. For those who grew up in Corinth, it would be hard to exaggerate how affected they would be by the culture around them. The sexual abuse that likely they would have endured as a young one. Growing up with a completely distorted picture of life, what those things, the gift of, of, of sexual a connection between a husband and a wife given by God, the distortion of that, the distortion of pleasure. What Paul was calling them to was amazing. It looked very different to the world around them. And yet notice how as he brings this forward, he doesn't simply say, you got to do this, gut it out, make it happen. He says, no, you are new. You're in the midst of this world. You're new. Live in light of who you are. And this is a really important thing to bring up because the final thing that we're going to see that God does through church discipline is not only does he restore sinners, not only does he preserve purity, but lastly, he also clarifies our witness. So realize that road up to the Acrocorinth and that view of looking down the valley below, Paul was not saying, get out of there. Go, get away. Lock yourself up tight in your own little place. No, instead he was saying, be there amongst them, but live differently. Now, he had written them a letter previously. We don't have access to that letter, letter anymore. But in that letter, he had stated to them in some way, hey, make sure you're not living of the world. But they had taken it possibly to mean, oh, he's telling us not to live in the world, right? Because we're supposed to be, according to the Bible, we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. So they had taken his instruction in that area and saying, that's right. We can't associate with any of those people. And the result of that was, the Corinthian church was kind of doing this. Well, those people out there, they're evil, they're bad, they're wrong, they're gross. Forget that. And yet, the way they were living amongst one another was such that they weren't addressing sin at all. Because the assumption is, well, we're in here, so we're okay. Is that not a danger for us? Isn't it so easy for us to be like, yeah, those people out there, they got problems. There's this kind of twistedness and this sort of ungodliness and this, that, and the other. And then in here, we're fine because we're in here. Paul was writing against that monastery perspective, the Christian bubble safety thing. He's saying, he's saying if you live in that, you're confused, you're distorted. And how sad it is when a church falls into that because in many ways, the contact points of the church have been reversed. So we disassociate with sinners without a savior only to associate with so-called Christians who love their sin more than the savior. Now this can be a challenging thing to navigate. 
And so for all of us, in each area of life, we need to be wise. But, but really, this remark from Paul does bring us to understand something. It's really important that we, before the Lord, pray through and seek his wisdom in those things. Why? Well, because here, he, he, he's, he's saying, be careful, brothers and sisters, to not remove yourself from the, the wickedness and corruption of the world around you so much that you find yourself constantly in this separatist little, little Christian, uh, I don't know, man, fortress with walls and no windows or doors. So Paul does not encourage that attitude. And here's the other thing. Get this. Paul's not encouraging that attitude even in, of all places, Corinth. I mean, if there was a first century place where you thought immorality, it was Corinth. There was a term regularly used throughout the ancient world that if you were acting in an immoral sexual way, you were playing the Corinthian. Paul's saying even there, don't separate. Now, what does that mean? Uh, We don't have time to talk about this in depth, but I would just say this. We need to prayerfully before God evaluate where our lives are at and what we're doing. And there are matters of conscience here. There are matters of wisdom here. There's a matter of nuance here. Uh, and this touches on everything from, from um, you know, what educational model parents choose uh, to, you know, whether we choose to move away to be around people more like us or not, to uh, what do we do with our professional lives as we work? What are we willing to do there? And it's very easy, by the way, to take our own perspective and go, that's right, every Christian ought to do this. So if you're really a godly Christian, your kids are going to be in public school. If you're really a godly Christian, your kids are going to be in private school. If you're really a godly Christian, your kids will be homeschool. And that's it. And the one thing we're very dogmatic about that in regards to those things around here at Clayton Valley Church is this. We will not be dogmatic about those things. Why? Because every parent has to wrestle with that. It depends on your kid. Depends on their disposition. You know, are they, are they the kind of uh, boy or girl who's like, you know what, I am just here. I don't care what people think. I'm rocking. I know the truth and I'm there. Great. Are they the kind of kid where it's like, no, they're more of an intake person. They're like a sponge. Whatever's around them, just gets soaked right up. Okay, good. Keep that in mind. Um, you know, it depends individually on our own, our own disposition. Um, in an area, perhaps, where you want to do some outreach. You know, maybe, maybe someone has wrestled with alcoholism. I don't think that person is called by God necessarily to do an outreach at the bar. Probably not. Not a good idea. Why? Because how does it affect me? What's it doing to me? Other people, they could do that. It'd be beautiful. Right? But we've got to be very careful. And I think so. There's much more to be said in this. We need to learn how to navigate that, how to, when he says, don't, don't pull yourself out of the world. Don't try to. Here's the key. Don't associate with a so-called brother or sister if they are acting in those ways in an unrepentant manner. Don't even eat with such a one. What does that mean? Don't casually just sort of hang out with people who have been disciplined out of the church. That's a tough one. That's hard to apply. Uh, years ago in Southern California, we had a situation come up like that, and I remember... Um, Someone asked me that, like, hey, what, what do we do? This, this person had been cheating on his wife, and the church had confronted him, and he had pretended like he was repenting, but he kept having a relationship with this woman. And it was 
Here's the thing. The neighbor, his neighbor, who is not a believer, but knew he went to church, his neighbor, she called the church office down there, called me. I'm on the phone. She's like, I, I know he goes to your church, but he's, he's cheating on his wife, and you probably can't do much about it. I'm like, you know what? Actually, we can do something about that. And that was hard. There was a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. But God used it in a good way, certainly in witness to this person who was his neighbor. You know, because the thought could be, well, I guess Christians don't care about that kind of thing. Yeah, they follow Jesus with their lips, but what they do, obviously this Jesus thing makes no difference at all. But then the question is, well, what what happens? Like, what happens if you see him somewhere? You know, what happens? I was going to go to the Dodger game with him. One person was dealing with that. I was going to go to the Dodger game. What, What am I doing now? And the response at the time was, you know what? Here's the thing. Any interaction with the brother or sister in this position is to call them to repentance. That's what it's for. So if you're going to be at a Dodger game sitting next to them calling them to repentance the whole game, I'd say go. But if not, they probably don't want to go with you anyway. The idea is we don't pretend like nothing's wrong. That's what Paul is calling out here. We don't pretend like it's no big deal. Yeah, you've been cheating on your wife. Wow, that's really a bummer. Okay. Hey, have you seen uh, this movie lately? That's not happening. It's I love you. The Lord loves you more. Will you please repent? Your soul is at stake. Your testimony of the gospel is at stake. Your witness to others in your life is marred by this. Will you turn? There's a lot of things to navigate here for us. How do we make decisions regarding in the world, not of the world? That's a big question. I just want to close with with one picture of that. Suppose you're a doctor and you're serving victims of the Ebola virus in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, So you're a doctor there. You have a a deadly, contagious disease that's out there. How are you going to conduct yourself? Well, one problem would be this. Oh, I'm not going out there. There's sick people out there. Forget that. It's dangerous. I could die. And be like, yeah, time out for one second. Um, You're a doctor. You're here because those people need you. And you need to get out there. That's your call. It would also be really insane to say, you know what? That's right. I'm a doctor. I'm here to help them. And then you go out there without any protective gear on at all against the infection. You just go out there. I'm going out there and I'm going to go do my thing because I'm here to help people. Well, okay, that's, that's suicidal. But you can see where that picture leads us of understanding. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. Lord, have mercy on us if we as a church just get so focused on us and here and what we do and everything about us that we're not day to day, Monday through the rest of the week, mindful of how God's placed us in different places to be a witness for him. If we're not sharing our faith in the schoolyard and in the marketplace and 
and, and uh, in the neighborhood and, and wherever else we find ourselves at work. Yikes. We're supposed to be there. We're supposed to be in that place. But also, Lord, have mercy on us as, as a church if we're just going to imbibe the sin that's around us and call it no big deal. Or even worse yet, be arrogant enough to say, oh yeah, there's sin out there, but in here, we're great. Because as Jesus walks among the lampstands in the opening chapters of Revelation, so too does he walk among his churches today. And he calls us to follow him. And he calls us to be a people that preserve purity and that by his grace clearly bear witness of what it means to follow him. And when there's brothers or sisters among us walking away, blatantly turning away from his commands in such a way that it's dragging his name through the mud to the world around us, we, we deal with it in love, in truth and love. And may that always be the case for Clayton Valley Church as we move forward together for his glory. And that the new lump that we are would be demonstrated in how we live. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would grace us to understand these things as challenging a section as this is. And we thank you for your word that truly does admonish and encourage and, and helps us. And we thank you for this. May we hear what you are saying and may you be glorified in your work within us. Amen.